That's good news, huh? I want to start with that video because what we're going to focus in on this morning has to do with the gospel and who has access to the gospel. And sometimes we need the gospel rehearsed back to us because we forget. We forget the good news of what Jesus has done for us, and not only for us, but for everyone. And really what we're going to focus in on today is on that video, the E, that the gospel really is for everyone. And now most of us in this room would say, yes, the gospel is for everyone, but we have to understand that sometimes, even though we say that, we don't live lives that reflect that. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit about this morning. So kind of give you some context of what we're going to focus in on this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find your way to Acts chapter 10. So the, the title today of what we're focusing on is Our Story Becomes Their Story, Part 2. It means there was a part one to this part of our, our big series where we're going through resurgence, which is revisiting the past to take hold of the future, looking at the book of Acts to say, God, what does it look like today for us to reflect what the church was supposed to be about, what it's supposed to look like? So a couple of weeks ago, John Looney did a great job. We were in Acts chapter 8. This was part one of Our Story Becomes Their Story. And there was this incredible encounter between Philip, a man named Philip, and an Ethiopian eunuch that God was working on. And he happened to be reading from the prophet Isaiah, and Philip comes alongside this chariot and eventually leads him to Jesus. This is an amazing, powerful story. But what gets missed in the evangelistic kind of focus of that story is that what we can tell from history that that Ethiopian eunuch, which John highlighted, that he was probably from what we would consider modern-day Sudan, was from what we can tell, at least in Scripture, was the first convert on the continent of Africa. That literally he takes back the gospel with him to his people, and the result is the gospel starts to spread to another continent. So it's kind of this opening of the gospel now getting outside of not only the geography, but outside of the people that originally was given to, which is the Jews. Which brings us to today, which is really important. This passage we're going to read, we're going to go through chapter 10, we're going to read a lot of scripture today, and then the first part of chapter 11. If you are not Jewish by birth or by, by past religion, you are, should be as excited as you've ever been in your entire life about what we're about to read. Because if it isn't for this story embedded in the middle of the book of Acts, you and I are not sitting here today. We don't have access to the gospel because Christianity simply becomes another extension of Judaism. It doesn't make it outside of the Jews. But what happens in this story is the hinge of the book of Acts. It's the hinge of the journey that now, now there's this explosion that's starting to happen that the gospel's not staying contained in the Jews. It's actually, and God actually does something pretty dramatic here to make sure it's that way, which we'll set up next week, which is the last part of, of chapter 11, which is the foundational passage of our church about Antioch Church. And I'm excited about it because I ain't preaching next week. My dad is. And he, I've given him that passage, and, and he is, I'm not saying this in false humility, he will do it way, 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 way better than me. I already looked at his notes, and I've heard him preach it before, so. Because it's this, what's cool about this, this is what is so exciting, is that this is, this is like now God starts going global with the gospel. It just starts spreading, and this is a really important passage, and it'll challenge you this morning. So just be, be ready, because the, the gospel doesn't, doesn't extend and doesn't move and doesn't grow apart from God's people. And so we have a huge, a huge role in what God is doing in our city and in the world. And so this, this kind of takes it to another level. So what I'd like you to do is I'm going to read through some different kind of chunks of the passage. But we're going to walk through and, and really kind of look at how do we take God's plan of the gospel and salvation for everyone and make it our plan. Embrace his plan. Because we usually have a plan. And then we pray, God, would you bless our plan? It doesn't work that way. 
God already has a plan that he's unfolding for the, for the world, and he's asked us to be a part of it. So how do we take that plan and make it a part of who we are and what we do? So, so go ahead. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 1 of chapter 10. I'll go down to verse 8, because the first reality is this. God is pursuing all people. He pursues all people because he loves everyone. So listen to what happens in this passage. So it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who, was, who feared God and with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God came in and said to him, to say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, I think we would do that too. And an angel shows up. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who had uh, attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So I want you to just, we're going to pause here for a moment because when you and I read this pastor, like, wow, this is really cool. God sends an angel to this Roman guy because he loves him. And so he's telling him to go get Peter because if you know the way the story goes, he's going to get access to the gospel. But if you are reading this, from the original context, and if you have a Jewish kind of mindset, you're understanding this is profound. God, through an angel, has reached out to a Roman centurion who oversees probably 60 to 80 men who has become the primary instrument of Jewish oppression in this day and age. And God is sending an angel to tell him that there's more for him. Now, if you're a Jew, you're like, wait a second here. That doesn't work for me. That doesn't work. But what this is demonstrating that is God is even pursuing a Roman. God is even pursuing an enemy. God is pursuing somebody that you would never even think of telling the gospel to, let alone ever crossing paths with. God goes to that person, and then he's saying, says to him through an angel, go get Peter. Why is this important? Because you and I have to understand that God loves all people. Therefore, God is pursuing everybody. It's not just a few people. It's not just the good people, the cool people, the Christians. God is pursuing everybody because he loves everybody. And that's demonstrated in who he goes after. That means that God orchestrates your life and the lives of people around you for one primary purpose. That you would reach out and find Jesus. That's why we exist. That's why we are still here. And that means that all across the world, there are people whose lives are positioned in such a way that God is reaching out for them there are no accidents with God. God has purpose in everything that he's doing. So that means that you and I have to get to the point where we don't pick and choose who we think God is pursuing. We just default to the fact that God pursues everybody. God orchestrates circumstances. You can see this happen quite often when you're getting outside of yourself and you see how God is working in the lives of people who've yet to know, come to know who he is. I see this, I've seen this happen a number of times in a laundromat, in our laundry love, in our Community group has been doing this for a few years now in a laundromat. And so after a few years, you get regulars and you start earning respect and trust. They realize that you're there because you really care about them. And so if, if you haven't been involved in laundry love, just so you know, laundry love is not about throwing quarters in washing machines and dryers. It's about showing up and loving people. And when you're present in your life and you get to know their journey and you reach out and then things spill outside the laundromat where you get to invest in their lives, it's amazing what happens. And so we've had a a number of people who've been coming for a long time, and so you get to know them, and so you have these conversations with them, and you kind of get in their lives, and one of the gals who's been coming for quite a while, she pulled me aside the other night, 
And she said, I just got to tell you what's going on in my life. And there's some things that are really difficult. So she, <clears throat> she started sharing with me some of the struggles she had within her family. It's pretty, some pretty heavy things. And so we were, I was just listening to her. And, and I could see she had gone to a whole new level of, hey, where's some quarters for my laundry? I mean, she's like bearing her soul. And so as we were talking about what was going on, I, I, I talked to her about some resources that are available to help her and her family and what she's going through. And then I stopped and I said, and this is, this is something that we've always, if you've been doing laundry, you're like, you, you want to value the fact that you're there to care for people. And we usually don't lead with, by the, by the way, we're from Antioch Church. That's usually, we don't lead with that. Because most people are like, the first thing is like, oh, this is a fun thing. The church is funding you to do this, which it's not. Every community group funds itself to do it. So I hadn't really said that, but she was pretty smart. I think she figured it out. And she did know we were part of what we call a community group. And so as I was talking to her, I said, I said to her, I said, do you, do you think that maybe that God is at work in what's going on in your life right now? And she kind of looked at me like, well, I don't know. I said, do you think maybe God had you pick this laundromat of the eight laundromats in Simi Valley, and God had uh, our community group pick this laundromat because he knew you would be in this laundromat and we would be in this laundromat for one reason, so that you would know that God loves you? And she says with a big smile on her face, I think so. So this is when I stepped way over the boundary marks. And I said, listen, I said, you know we're a group of people that does this, and we call ourselves a community group. She goes, yeah, I know that. I said, you know that you're welcome to come to our community group anytime you want. And I said, on, on top of that, this is where I really stepped over. I said, you know we're a part of the church, yeah. I said, you are welcome at Antioch anytime that you want to come. She's been invited three or four times with different people in the community group, and she's always said, yeah, I'll come, but she hasn't made it yet. That's okay. The most important thing is to get her to Jesus, not to get her to church. And eventually, I know that's going to happen. But God orchestrated an encounter in a laundromat that's been building over for the last year for one primary reason, that she's going to know that God loves her, and there's a group of people that are going to show up in her life to demonstrate that so that eventually she's going to know Jesus personally, not just through other people, but through her own experience with him. That's the way God works. Now, so for, I won't go, that, go too far on this, but for some of you, you, you probably need to ask yourself a question. Some, some people have said, I don't know if I could do laundry. I told them to talk to strangers. They're like, oh, I'm not going to a laundromat. I know who goes to the laundromats. Ooh, maybe this message is for you today. Maybe this message is for you because there's a group of people that God wants to give to access to the gospel, and he wants to do it through your life, but you've got to show up. Second thing, this is where it gets difficult. If that wasn't hard enough, here we go. Look at verses 9 through 16, because making God's plan, our plan means God's going to confront your religious convictions. So going on, look at verse 9. If we go on in the story down to verse 16, it says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And then saw heavens open and something like a, a great sheet descending, being led down, let down by four corners up, upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, this is huge. Peter's a good Jew. Peter would never any, the, the Jews had strict dietary laws, and there were certain things you could eat and certain things that you couldn't, certain things that were clean, certain things that were unclean. And so God 
gives Peter this vision and lowers down all these things that are considered unclean and then tells him to kill and eat, would that slightly confuse you? Yes. The answer is yes. But if you, as we'll read on, you're realizing God's, this isn't just about God saying, okay, you can eat anything you want to eat because you're hungry, Peter. God is moving towards this window into this is not just applying to animals. This is applying to people. Because just as the Jews had unclean or clean and unclean things they could eat, they also looked at people as clean and unclean, as common and uncommon. And so there's this now broadening. God's starting to do something. Now, this is interesting because God is challenging a religious conviction that Peter has had as long as he could remember. There's everything inside of him that says, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. I'm a good Jew. I don't do this. And God's opening the door for him to understand something that he hasn't seen before, that God loves people. Now, there are times in your life where God is going to push in on what you think is a conviction that is from him, but really it's more of something that's been given by humanity, and you and I live it out as some God mandate in our life that maybe God wants to adjust. That's hard. We're like, wait a second, because we, we get set in stone our belief system, and we don't necessarily always go back to say, God, is this really what I'm supposed to believe from Scripture, or did we kind of add to it and create it and craft it in such a way, and then we make it gospel truth? This happens all the time. This has happened throughout the Christ history of Christianity. We won't go through the whole history of Christianity, but there's a whole lot of things that were done in the, in the name of Christ that were said to be from God that had nothing to do with God, but were somehow justified as some conviction. One of those that's happened a little bit more recently than going back centuries was actually, you and I heard about it in the news and we saw the rise of it, and, but, but part of it has its, its inception in a religious conviction that was embedded years before a genocide happened. Back in 1994, most of us didn't know where Rwanda was on a map until two tribes started killing each other. And then suddenly it became a crisis that made our 24-hour news cycle, at least for a month or so. What was happening is there's two, two groups or two tribes primarily in Rwanda, the Hutus and the Tutsis, and they were going at it. And literally, in a very short amount of time, a million people were slaughtered. Million. We have a category for that. And for most people looking on the outside, looking in, they're like, oh, it's Africa. This happens all the time. There's civil unrest. There's one tribe going after other. It's just Africans. Nobody said that, but let's be honest. Everybody thought it. But it wasn't just Africans. See, because the result of what was happening in 1994 started literally hundreds of years before. It started as a byproduct of a thing called colonialism which is much of the, the, the countries in Europe, you know your history as good as, good as I do, they, they discovered different places around the globe, and Africa was a very uh, appealing thing for a lot of Europeans. So they went and they colonized, which means they took over a territory, they called it their own, and then they set up their own customs. And that's why when you go to places like Uganda, they drive on the wrong side of the road. Why? Because of England. <laughs> Things like that get embedded into their culture. But you know what happened in Rwanda? That some of the Europeans that migrated there that colonized Rwanda, they traced that they had a belief system that drawed a conviction from an Old Testament passage that was taken out of context that justified slavery towards people with dark skin. It's out of Genesis chapter 9. They call it the curse of Ham. And there are people who believe that when Noah got drunk after the flood, and Ham, his son, went in and saw his nakedness in the tent. If you know that story, he goes, instead of covering his dad, what does he do? He goes and tells his brothers like it's a joke. 
and then his older brothers back their way in so they don't uncover their father, and they throw a blanket over him, and then when Noah come, comes, to, he comes to his senses, he's a little bit upset, so he curses Ham. And he says, basically, you're going to serve your older brothers. And out of Ham came what's called the Canaanites. And people say, well, the Canaanites were of dark skin. And because of that, they were, they were cursed to servitude. Therefore, people with black skin should be slaves. That's a religious conviction that people carried hundreds of years ago. That got embedded in Rwanda. Because when the Europeans showed up, they assessed the Tutsis and the Hutus. And they said the Tutsis seemed to be better than the Hutus. The Hutus deserve servitude and slavery, while the Tutsis are the ones, even though they're a small mi minority, they deserve the place of prestige in the culture. So when the Europeans withdrew, they left the stain of their conviction. And so that's what happened, is the Hutus responded to the oppression they had experienced for years and years and years and started slaughtering the Tutsis. Where did that start? Oh, that's just an African unrest. No. It's embedded, part of it's embedded in a religious conviction that is drawn from some weird understanding of Scripture that justified somehow making people into slaves because of the color of their skin. Has a little bit more impact on the fact that when we look at our own country, we didn't just happen to pick Africa. I think there was also embedded in our own history this idea of the color of skin being tied to slavery. That's what happens when our religious convictions become something that becomes a part of us that we don't necessarily realize they're not from the scriptures, they're not from God, but they've been crafted like they are. It's getting just like first service. You guys are getting really quiet and serious, so we'll move on. So God's going to challenge your religious convictions. Why? Because sometimes our religious convictions get in the way of his plan. So look at verses 17 to 29 of chapter 10. We move on. So making God's plan our plan means that God views no one as unclean or common. No one. God doesn't, doesn't work that way. So let me read on, go on here. Verse 17. It says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, that's a slight understatement. Would you be slightly perplexed if God is pushing in on something that you've held true for so many years? As to what the vision ha he had seen it might meant, and behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether P uh, Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What, what is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to, his, to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and, and some of the, of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and he found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Uh, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I, uh, when I was presented for you, I came without objection. 
I ask that, that why, uh, why you sent for me. So I just want you to pause for a minute here. I know when I've read that, I think, man, God, why don't you just do that today? I'm just going to hang out at home. You send an angel to somebody who doesn't know you and tell them to come look for me. And then when I show up to their house, their house is packed with a bunch of people that don't know Jesus, and all I have to do is just show up. Anybody, like, think that would be cool? That would be awesome, wouldn't it? God is orchestrating this for, one, for, a, for a bigger purpose. Now, Peter's been confronted with, now, okay, all these things I couldn't eat, now I can eat now. And now Peter, a good Jew, is, is in a Gentile's house. This is, this is profound. Why? Because God's saying to Peter, and he's saying to all people, there are, no there are no common people, there are no unclean people, there's just people. And if we're going to classify it, we're all unclean people. And so God's getting at that, and that's important for us to understand, because so many times, and I know this has been true in my life, all of us have a category of people, and this is how we refer to them. Those people. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many times in your life have you talked about a group of people and you've used that phrase, those people, without even knowing what you're saying is those people are set apart and different than me. Those people have this issue. Those people are like this. And so you're, you're showing this disconnect, this bias or this prejudice by referring to a group of people as those people. We all have those people. I've had too many groups of those people in my life that God has convicted me of and shown me that in the kingdom of God, there is no those. It's only us. There is no delineation. The only delineation that God makes will be in eternity when he decides by his judgment who's in and who's out. But for us, we, we, don't, we don't do that. Think about what groups of people have, have you run into you that you didn't realize that maybe you had an issue with. They were those people. I actually remember the first time in my life when I realized I had categories of those people. And it wasn't even based on ethnicity or color of skin, which I, real I realized later in my life that I did have issues with people of different ethnicity, and God had to convict me on that. But I was, actually, I remember the first time this happened, I was in ninth grade. I was in ninth grade, and it was this, the last semester of my ninth grade year, so my last semester of junior high or middle school. And for some reason, my mom made a decision that she wasn't going to make my lunch anymore. I was old enough to make my own lunch. Now, when you're in ninth grade and you're hungry and you're lazy, you don't want to make your own lunch, okay? But I did hear from some people that I knew that if you worked in the cafeteria at lunchtime, you could get a free lunch every single day. I thought, ooh, that sounds appealing. But here is the tension, just being honest. For two and a half years in middle school, I hung out with the jocks. I was an athlete. Every time there was a break from class, I was on the basketball court. That's what I did. So I had a huge circle of friends, and we all hung out together. And so that was kind of my, my circle. But the people who worked in the cafeteria, they were a whole nether circle altogether. They were those people. They were the geeks and the nerds and the losers. They didn't have any athletic ability. They didn't have anything going. They were kind of socially awkward. But so they all worked, you know, in the cafeteria. And I remember, or at the snack, they had a snack bar. And so you'd go up and they have to wear the little hairnet. And we would just mock them to their face. I'm like, ooh, is free food worth that? I'm like, yeah, it is. So I said yes. So I started working. Actually, I ended up in the snack bar during the cafeteria hours. And so I was... I was selling, and my friends would come to me, and they're like, oh, nice hairnet. You know, they were mocking me big time, and I'm like, hey, I get free lunch when this is over. In fact, the coolest thing is I discovered that whatever was left over after lunch, 
you get to eat. So there are days I ate three lunches. <laughs> I was like in heaven. But I remember the first day I sat down, and I sat down with all these, these guys I had never talked to. I had walked the other way. I'd never, they'd all been in, in my school all three years, and I just wouldn't talk to them because they were just, they were freaks. I mean, they're, they're sitting there, and they're, they like computers. It's like, what's wrong with you? I try to talk like sports, like Dodgers, Lakers, you know. They didn't even understand. I mean, they were playing games and computer games, and I think they were playing like Dungeons and Dragons and all these fantasy games. And I'm like, how about reality, guys? You know, basketball? And I had nothing in common. I'm like, what am I doing? And I'm like, man, I'm really hungry. So I started hanging out with them. And a couple weeks, weeks went by, and so we had a good, like, 15, 20 minutes after lunch was over that before we had to go to our next period because we got to eat. They kind of, we got special provision. And so I started getting to know these guys, and I'm just going to confess, after about a month, I realized they're not that bad. They don't like sports, and they do different things, but they're just like me. They're no different. They just have different interests in life. And so I remember even feeling that, like, man, why have I been so hard on these guys all the years in middle school? Because I was an insecure jerk, like we all are in middle school, right? But I started to realize that, that there's a little opening in my life at that time that realized there are groups of people that I don't even know, but I've already marginalized them. I've already written them off. And this is what we have to come to grips with. That there are no groups of people. There are no those people. I had a guy come to me between services. Man, I'm, I'm talking about getting a free meal and hanging out with geeks. He's talking about serving in the military in the Middle East and watching his own, f his friends and fellow soldiers losing their lives to people who he couldn't stand. And God convicting him that Jesus loves Arabs, and he should too. He said the result was they started a fellowship that was reaching Arabs in the middle of a war zone. That's a God thing. I mean, I can't handle, handle geeks. I can't imagine someone who's taking the life of my friend. God loves that person too. There are no unclean or common people. Fourth thing. Again, these are bigger chunks we're going to read here. Look at verse 30. I'm going to read to verse 48. God uses us to reach people. So what, uh, before I read this, uh, I, just want, I wish, I honestly wish, that what God would have done in this passage, which would have made it so much easier on us, is that God sent an angel to Cornelius. Why didn't the angel just share the gospel? Seriously, why didn't the angel just say what Peter's going to eventually say and just save the whole headache for Peter, right? Because God doesn't share the gospel through angels. God shares the gospel through people. Because when the gospel comes through people, it carries more weight. You're like, wait, 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 an angel? Yeah, because when an enemy shares the gospel with an enemy and becomes friends, that's more powerful than anything. So this is what's happening in this passage. So going on, verse 30. So it says, and Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter, he is lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Before I go on, just realize, Cornelius is referred to as a God-fearer. There are tons of God-fearers in our world that just don't know Jesus yet. They just need somebody to come along and to realize, in fact, the gal that I talked to in our laundromat, she's a God-fearer. She, she acknowledges that God exists. She just doesn't know Jesus yet. 
Just know him personally. Eventually that's going to happen. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in, co in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him uh, to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him as he rose after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one, or the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To all uh, the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing uh, them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone without or withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. That should settle in. Even while Peter was like, Sharing, he didn't even give an invitation. He didn't have everybody close their eyes and bow their heads so that people could raise their hands. The Holy Spirit shows up and falls on Gentiles because God loves people and God uses people to reach people. God didn't send an angel because he was gonna send Peter and Peter was far more effective than even an angel. And that makes you and I think God loves people enough to use you to reach them. And you know how you know that's true? If you follow Jesus today, I guarantee 100% confident in this, there is at least one, if not 10 or 100 people you can point at that were the key to you discovering Jesus. There's people. God places people in your life for that reason. In fact, to demonstrate this, I'm going to ask you to do narrow it down to one person. One person that you know was really an, a key ingredient in you finding Jesus. And on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to say their name out loud. You ready to do it? All together. One, two, three. My dad. So I want you to do that because you just articulated one person that God used in your life. You are that person to somebody else and you don't even know it. You are the person that someday somebody will speak. There, out of their mouth will come your name as being the key person that helped them to discover Jesus. If you and I learn from what God is saying in this passage that there are no unclean people, there are no common people, there, there are nobody that nobody is somehow exempt from receiving the gospel because the gospel is for everyone. And there are people that maybe intentionally or unintentionally you have not given access to the gospel because, because somehow they are those people to you. Obviously, the Gentiles were those people to Peter, but look where Peter is. Peter's standing in a Gentile's house watching the Holy Spirit fall on them and them experience salvation and baptism. God was demonstrating something so powerfully. And then that leads to <clears throat> the final thing this morning. So going on, if you look at, at chapter 11, I'm not going to read all the way to verse 18, but what, what happens 
in this next part is, is that ultimately God's plan wins. God's plan wins. So it's, you, you always want to be on the winning side, right? Then God's plan should, we should adopt God's plan. So what happens is then Peter goes back to Jerusalem to report to the church and the church leaders. This is what happened. And I got to admit, Peter's probably freaking out just a little bit like, man, they're not going to believe this. I went to the house of a Gentile. And so he goes back and rehearses the story to them. He says, this is what happened. And the Holy Spirit, just like the Holy Spirit came on us, the Holy Spirit came on the Gentiles. So God is obviously doing something. And then he says this. Look at verses in, in, in chapter 11, verse 16 and 17 excuse me, 17 and 18, says, if then, this is Peter speaking, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Man, Peter's powerful words, who am I? to stand in God's way of what he wants to do. Now, I'm pretty convinced most of us in, the, in this room would never really intentionally say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep God from getting the gospel to these people. I don't think we're going to, but I think unintentionally we do it all the time because we'll gravitate towards people that we like or we're familiar with or speak the same language or look the same or all those kinds of things, but we won't go to people who maybe are those people to us. That's how the gospel spreads. There are estimated 3,000 people groups that yet have, have had access to the gospel in the world. There's 3,000 people groups that comprise those people. And you know what's beautiful? A lot of them live within the borders of our own country that God has brought us here so we might be able to reach. So I want to close with, with this, and then the worship team, in fact, the worship team can come and join me. We're going to do one last song. <coughs> When we moved into our house that I grew up in out in Van Nuys in the Valley, um, you know, when you're a kid and you move into a new place, you kind of scout and look out and see what's going on. And so for me, like the most important place that our house had was not the house itself. It was the backyard. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I want to have room to run and play and whatever. So I went in the backyard. And I remember the first time I went into our backyard, I noticed something that caught my attention. Now, the house was about 25 years old when my parents were buying it when I was growing up. And so and it had some history there, but I noticed right away when I went into the backyard that there was this gate that went into the neighbor's backyard. It was like an actual gate with hinges and everything that was in the middle of the wall, and I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of weird that you could just go right into your neighbor's backyard, and so, you know, like any typical kid, I'm like, well, I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to try it, so I tried it, and you couldn't budge it. I noticed there were things piled up in front of it on our side, and I figured out there were things piled up on the other side, and there was a lock on it, and even though I pushed hard on it, no, it wouldn't give. And so somehow I figured out somehow in, in the history of those two houses, either family members lived next to each other or the neighbors became such good friends, they decided to put a fence or a gate so they could go in between each other's backyards. But something happened over time where that, that gate became non-functional and just kind of blended into the wall. And as I got older and I grew up, my, my, my grandpa and my dad put a basketball court in our backyard for me. And it just happened to be up against that wall where that gate was. And so, so many times I was playing basketball and the ball would go over the fence. And it was, I was like, oh man, you're like, now I gotta either hop the fence and we had let ivy grow up over where this gate was. And so I'd have to climb over the ivy and jump down in or 
that lame thing when you're a kid and you got to go knock on somebody's door. Remember that? You're like, oh, my ball went, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, go get it, right? But it's just a pain. And so I kept, a number of times I kept pushing on that gate. Like, man, this thing opened one time and I could never, ever get the gate open. You and I are supposed to be a gate. A gate that is a gateway for people to access the gospel. And unintentionally, somewhere in our history, somewhere in our lives, we become a non-functioning gate that blends in with the wall that keeps us separated from the people that God wants to reach. And maybe today the Holy Spirit wants to bring conviction as he brought to Peter. There's a group of people that are on the other side of that gate that God's saying, it's time for you to open the gate. It's time for you to walk through, for them to walk through. It's time for them to access the gospel, the truth of who I am for their lives. And you're the key person that I've placed at the gate to open it. He's calling you to do that. Somebody, a couple people have shared some things with me over the last couple weeks about things they've seen about our church. I didn't share this first, but I feel prompted now to do that. And that this is, the people who have shared this with me have been a part of our church for years and years. They predate me. They said there's something unique happening in our church right now that isn't just about our church, but God is doing things in, in a much more rapid fashion than before. People are getting healed. People are coming to know Jesus. Change is happening in people's lives quickly. And they were saying there's something that God is doing that he's kind of cleared the debris field above the church and he's doing his work more rapidly. And it isn't necessarily because somehow God's become more powerful. It's because finally we've gotten to a place where we're, he's got our attention. And so I'm hoping today that he's getting our attention. Because I'm telling you, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people in our city that don't know Jesus. And they may come to Jesus by walking in the doors of Antioch and responding to an um, invitation on a Sunday morning. But you know what? More effectively, you know how they're going to find Jesus? In their living room, just like Cornelius did. When God says, you're the gate, you're the gateway. Open up. Let him in. I'm going to pray, and in a moment we're going to sing a song about surrender about surrendering so we can be the church that God wants us to be. And in that surrender, I'm gonna pray that, that God, you would allow the Holy Spirit to highlight those people that God wants you to surrender, your bias or your prejudice or what you've done to hold back. Because I know the Holy Spirit's faithful and he'll always highlight people even if we don't want him to. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's ethnically based. It might even be more of an economic thing. You're at a certain kind of economic level and whether you know it or not, you look down on people who are not at your same economic level and there's been distance. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody's own behavior and their lifestyle choice that you look at them and you look down on them. Leaving distance for the gospel never to reach them. I don't know what it is, but the Holy Spirit does and He wants us to be like Peter. He wants us to set foot in a place that we never thought we'd find ourselves talking to people we never thought we'd relate to. Why? Because God loves people and our story is not our story. It is the story of God close your eyes let's pray Jesus we thank you we thank you that you loved us you loved people so much that you would even come to Peter in his own religious conviction and show him that there was something bigger just mo so much bigger than just the right or the wrong when it came to diet or the right or the wrong when it came to people but that you love people so much that you were willing 
to push Peter past his comfort zone so that Cornelius' family could hear the truth of the gospel and the gospel could spread. So Lord, I ask right now that in a moment as we sing that you would give us the courage to truly surrender our biases, our prejudices, our, our, our walls that we've built to keep people away and that Lord, the walls would come down in such a way that you would be able to use us, people, your people, to demonstrate the gospel is for everyone, the good news is for everyone, that Jesus, you love everyone, and you want everyone to have that opportunity to turn to you, to turn from their lives, to follow you, to experience forgiveness, to experience life, the reason why they exist, the reason why you came. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your love for the world. Help us to be a church and a people that love the world just as you do. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.